I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find the, the book of Psalms. You just go to the right, Ecclesi- uh, uh, Psalms, then the book of Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes represents in some ways the painful autobiography of King Solomon, uh, Israel's most powerful king, at the end of his life, feeling powerless, unable to control his life, unable to control what will happen to his work and to his wealth after his death, grappling with the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death. But at one point in his life as a younger man, Solomon displayed extraordinary wisdom. His, his father, King David, recognized his son's wisdom even before God gave Solomon an additional measure of wisdom for the purpose of providing leadership for God's people. Solomon received a wise and understanding heart from the Lord, and as David's successor, quickly gained renown for being exceedingly wise and insightful and obtained a reputation that attracted all the kings of the earth to his courts. Solomon was also a man with endless opportunities and involved in extensive building activities and economic expansion during a time when the nation of Israel was never wealthier, never more unified, and never more filled with a sense of purpose. Solomon was a statesman, a a politician, a scientist, an author, a poet, a teacher, an architect, and a musician. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we discover that he spoke 3,000 proverbs and penned more than 1,000 songs. Solomon was surrounded by success and affluence. But sadly, over time, Solomon went from being a wise king to a foolish king. Why did he do that? Well, these are the kinds of questions that Ecclesiastes answers for us, why Solomon did that and some of the things that Solomon learned through all of life's experiences we find in this book. And what we learn from Solomon's own lips is that instead of using his wisdom to discern truth from error and to lead the people to live righteously, Solomon used it to test or to discern pleasure for himself. That is to say that he misused the gifts that God had given him, squandering God's blessings on his own personal pleasures rather than enjoying and employing them for God's glory. Solomon had it all, humanly speaking, but he lost his bearings. He drifted in his heart and began to love and to fear the wrong things until he eventually came to a place where he hit rock bottom in his miserable existence repenting from his idolatry and returning to the Lord. Never giving up his belief in God, not always understanding the plan, the the inner workings of, of God's creation and the personal providence of God, sometimes frustrated by the plan of God, but ultimately embracing the plan and coming to the right conclusions. And then writing to warn subsequent generations not to make the same tragic error. 
living with a burning desire to teach these life-saving truths, helping us to know how fulfilling life can be when we see things from God's perspective. So here we have Solomon in his old age. Looking back on the important turning points in his career, leaving, if you will, a final testament to his people and his own son on the basis of his own life's experience, preaching a God-inspired message, maybe even gathering uh, members of his court and intending for scribes to take down these words and send them out as a message to Israel and to the nations that regardless of a person's education or health or economic status or social influence, life lacks any ultimate meaning apart from God and His holy will. So from the very beginning of this book, Solomon has been writing about life as it is both experienced and observed under the sun, or we might say outside of the Garden of Eden and this side of eternity. And right out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 2, he states, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Which in one sense means that life is fleeting, life is brief, life is transitory or even vapor-like. But not only that, life is also puzzling. Life is perplexing, In other words, there are some things that we see and experience in life and we try to connect the dots and to make sense of it all, but we don't know how to interpret the information and the data that we have. We see various patterns and cycles, but we also see the anomalies, the irregularities, the exceptions, and we often scratch our heads and wonder why things happen the way that they do. And there is something else. Life is also futile. That is to say that in light of the curse of sin, life lacks substance and leaves us feeling empty. And this is a universal problem, whether you are 8 or whether you're 78, whether you live in Atlanta or whether you live in Hong Kong or Eldoret, Kenya. Futility, meaninglessness, disappointment, empty achievements... Which takes us back to the beginning, right? It takes us back to the first three chapters of Genesis when God, the sovereign creator, made man and blessed him with many gifts. God gave to man a relationship with himself. He gave to him a place to live and a, and a food to eat, a, a, a job to do, meaningful responsibility, and even gave him another person, a companion, to share life with. But because of Adam's sin... God cursed this earth and this life so that no one can find satisfaction, lasting satisfaction in the gifts, but only in Him. So that nobody will ever experience peace and joy and contentment when they choose to worship and serve the creature rather than the true living, true and living God. Because God has put eternity into man's heart, Solomon says in chapter 3, verse 11, or as Daniel Estes notes, we are bound by time, but wired for eternity. Which means that every person on this planet feels a sense of restlessness. 
And they feel that sense of rest, restlessness for, for, for several reasons. One, because God is, has made them for himself. God has made us for himself. And along with that, because God has made us with a desire uh, and an ability, if you will, to research and to, to, to observe and to contemplate what God has made in our own existence and has put within our heart a desire to know how the world and all of the details of our lives fit together. To trace these things out from beginning to end, the problem is we can't. We can't. In fact, all of this actually brings a frustration. A frustration that is the result of a God-given burden. A restlessness that is placed on us by God. But rather than living in frustration... And rather than fretting all the time and worrying about all these things, God wants us to accept our limitations and to trust Him and to enjoy His gracious gifts rather than worship them. So Solomon Solomon makes no bones about it, makes it very clear, life is frustrating. Life is frustrating. We live in a world of frustration that is that, that God himself has imposed on this earth because of the curse of Genesis 3. But learning to live wisely, learning to live wisely in this world can reduce our frustration. And that is one of Solomon's main objectives. Not just to explain why life is the way that it is, but to help us to live wisely in a world that has been bent and twisted by Adam's fall to show us how to work our way around some things in life so that that we can minimize our frustration, to steer around, if you will, and, and avoid some of the potholes in life. And if we were to go back to chapter 3, verse 16 of Ecclesiastes and work our way up through the end of chapter 4, what we would notice is that there is a lot of foolishness and there, is a lot, there, are, there are a lot of frustrating things that we witness on a daily basis and in various sectors of life. And Solomon, as our tour guide of sorts, points out this reality and, and shares his observations. For example... He takes us to the courtroom and shows us the injustice and the bias that prevail. He then takes us into the marketplace where people are tirelessly attempting to climb the ladder of success, where competition and rivalry abound. Then he takes us to the highways. He takes us, he takes us out to the, the highways and to the public roads of the ancient Near East where danger looms around every corner, and from there to the palace, where even the king must learn the painful truth that he is expendable, and that popularity and fame are precarious and short-lived. And as we're seeing this, these things, as, as Solomon is sort of taking us from, 
from one sector of life to another. We're going, we're going to the, the, the courtroom and onto the workplace and then out into the streets and then into the palaces. He's sort of moving us from, from one arena of life into another. We're seeing all these things, the oppression, the abuse of power, all of the people-pleasing that goes on, the unwillingness of leaders to receive instruction. Leaders who at once were very young and loved by the people, now they hold office for a number of years and they get to the point where they don't want to listen to counsel anymore. And so they're replaced and their popularity is short-lived. We see all of that, the wickedness and the folly. And we're tempted to think that the problem is all out there. In other words, as you go through chapter 3 and chapter 4, and, and you see Solomon sort of pointing to, pointing to these various areas of life, and you say, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen injustice. I've seen people taking advantage of others. I've seen the abuse of power. I've seen the competition. I've seen people in the workplace step on other people to get, the, to get ahead. I've seen all that. I've seen all the, all the tragedies that happen in daily life. I've seen all the shenanigans and the things that are going on in, in politics and in government. And it's as if, I think, we're reading these things, we, co- we, might, we might be tempted to draw this conclusion that, yeah, it's all out, all, out, all out there, that's the problem. It's what's going on out there. But in chapter 5, verse 1, Solomon changes to the second person as if to say that it's easy to spot the folly and the evil that goes on out there in the political arena or in the work environment or with the legal system or across the street in your own neighborhood. But what about in here? What about our worship? What about our relationship with God? We all know that there is a vanity and a futility that is manifested out there. That there's a bunch of foolishness and a bunch of wickedness out there. But what about what goes on when we gather as the church? What about foolish religion? What about mechanical and rote worship? Insincere worship? Empty formalism? And it's in light of these things that Solomon brings a deep and inescapable challenge and warning to all of us. If you'll follow along, I'll begin reading. This is out of the English Standard Version, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Solomon writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake." Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity 
but God is the one you must fear. Solomon says, you want more disappointment in your life? You want more discouragement in your life? You want more of that vanity of vanities frustration? Simple. Just mishandle your relationship with God. Have a wrong perspective about worship. Forget about what's supposed to happen when we gather as the church. Now, Solomon makes reference here to the house of God or the temple, that incredible edifice in Jerusalem whose construction that Solomon actually had supervised. And we understand that there's a real difference between the temple and a New Testament church. In the temple was the actual locus of worship. In a geographical sense, it was the center of Israel's worship. But in a, New, in a New Testament church, we don't come to this building because of some geographical significance. We come here to worship Christ in the spirit of our hearts as the people of God. That is to say, as we consider this passage, we know that the most significant thing is not the place where we gather, but what happens when we gather. We're grateful for this school. We're grateful for this school's willingness to to have us here for the past 10 months. And we are grateful that next Sunday, if you haven't marked this on your calendars, but next Sunday, Cherokee Christian Schools will allow us to meet there going forward. But Ephesians 2 says that we are being joined together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in our day, the house of God is no longer a holy building. We, believing people, are the house of God. And any holiness that attaches to the place comes and leaves with the presence of God's holy ones, those who have been called into His service. So there's nothing special about this this structure. Nevertheless, we're still dealing with the same problem at at the heart level that Solomon was addressing in his day. These these temptations, Paul says, are, are common to man. And church under the sun warrants caution. Because the foolishness and the wickedness that saturates the marketplace or the political arena or the family reunion doesn't retreat as, as if a moat or a force field stood between it and the gathering of God's people. Whether in a church or out of it, people under the sun exhibit folly. We're not exempt. Empty worship, religiosity, worship that ignores what God wants. Not viewing God as someone to be adored and served not wanting to listen to God, but only to talk about themselves and their own desires. Solomon knows that our hearts can go there. And so he gives us a warning. And the first command says it all. Guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to worship. Don't be reckless. Be cautious. 
be sensible and wise. And watch out. Watch out for foolish religion. Watch out for vain worship. And Solomon goes on to tell us how to do that. How to be a wise worshiper. How to be a wise worshiper. And how to steer clear of foolish religion. How to be a wise worshiper and how to steer clear of foolish religion. And he tells us three things. First, he tells us, beware of manipulating God with vain prayers. Beware of manipulating God with vain prayers. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they, what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, the picture that Solomon paints in verse 1 is, is one of a worshiper going to the temple to pray. While people would go to offer animal sacrifices, they would often go to offer sacrifices of prayer. You remember how disturbed Jesus was because his father's house, which was to be a house of prayer, had been turned into a den of robbers. In Luke chapter 18, verse 10, you read about the two men. Right, the, the one was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector, and both of them went up into the temple to pray. Then in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Luke records how Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. That is to say, worship at the temple always included prayer. And Solomon is referring to that here, and he offers a warning He says, when you go to worship God and when you go to pray, guard your steps. Why? Because he says, if you don't, you might offer the sacrifice of fools. In other words, there's a kind of practice of religion that goes on that some are ignorant of. They have no idea how evil it is, that thing that they are doing. So what is the sacrifice of fools? Well, Solomon isn't trying to discourage prayer, generally speaking. He's not saying, don't pour out your heart before the Lord. In fact, Psalm 62 verse 8 encourages us, Trust in Him, the Lord, at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. But what Solomon is pointing out is the fact that there is, there is something that we sometimes do. Foolishly trying to manipulate God. Being quick to complain to God. Demanding something from God. Being hasty in going to God because from your perspective, God isn't running things the way that you want them to be run. 
acting as if God is only here for me to use him. Solomon says, There is an approach to worship and an approach to prayer that will bring with it added frustration. A brash attitude. Treating God as if he is just there to give you what you want. So Solomon isn't against praying. In fact, Solomon is, isn't even against long prayers. Because you, get the, you might get the impression that he, because he warns about all of the words, he's saying we should keep our prayers short, <laughs> concise, to the point. But that's really not it. Solomon's not against long prayers. After all, one of the longest prayers in the Bible is found in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's own prayer of dedication when the temple was completed. So that's not the issue. That's not what he's concerned about. But he is concerned about prayers that are nothing more than a list of demands. When people draw near to God, not to hear from Him, but to voice their own opinions and tell God what is on their minds, which is the total opposite of true worship. I mean, who, who are we to complain? <laughs> who are we to complain? Who are we to tell God what to do? And yet, this is what happens when things aren't going our way, right? When we experience disloyalty, when we're struggling with, with loneliness when relationships are going downhill, when the paycheck is shrinking rather than growing, when our, when our health is declining rather than improving. Think about how many of our prayers revolve around the frustration and the consequences of the fall and wanting God to alleviate those things, especially when they adversely affect and interfere with our personal lives. You know, there's not much, not much of a gap between Solomon's world and ours. Demanding, brash, self-promoting, self-focused prayers. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, this is at the very heart of the message of today's prosperity preachers, right? Living as if the real God of the universe is faith or belief. And that even the God of the Bible is subordinate to that God or that power. And because God is subordinate to this law of faith, they tell us, then you too can tap into this power and you can speak what you want into existence. The net result of that kind of false teaching is that we have a bunch of professing Christians running around telling God what to do. 
complaining to God about life and demanding that God do what they want because they have faith and they have followed the formula. But where does that lead according to Solomon? Vanity of vanities. Empty frustration. It's foolish religion whenever a person tries to misuse their relationship with God for selfish, material, and worldly ends. When they try to use prayer as a tool to manipulate God and make Him dance to their tune. God delights to answer prayer. God delights to give. (laughs) But God will not be used. This kind of mentality is destructive. Not only because it turns worship, if you think about it, it turns worship on its head. But also because when God, God doesn't come through, when people think that way and then God doesn't come through, people are disillusioned. They're disillusioned. Disappointed. And it's not just those caught up in the prosperity gospel that are guilty. What about us? Have you ever tried to dictate to God what you wanted? Solomon says, watch out. Be on guard. So, do do you want to reduce the frustration? Do you want to reduce the frustration? Start praying to God as if you actually trust Him. Only foolish religion believes that God is there to serve my needs. Only foolish religion tries to back God into a corner and force Him to give me what I want. All worship that is self-centered, Solomon cautions, will ultimately prove frustrating. Now in verse 3, Solomon uses an illustration to show us how meaningless and useless, demanding, and self-focused prayers are. He compares such prayers to dreams and the night, verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. That is to say, uh, as, as too much stress and too much activity produce useless dreams, right? Because we, we work in all of our activity, and what do we typically dream about? <laughs> the things that we're, we're doing and we're involved in and the busyness, right? He's saying just, just as too much stress and too much activity produce useless dreams, so too many demanding words produce useless prayers. Jesus himself had something to say about this problem of useless prayers with, with no humility of heart. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Demanding kind of prayers that are not shaped by the goodness of God, the omniscience of God, and the sovereignty of God are useless prayers. So, pray with joy and with respect. Go asking and adoring. 
pray with supplication, but pray with submission. Beware, Solomon says, of manipulating God with vain prayers. Second, Solomon warns, beware of bribing God with empty promises. Beware of bribing God with empty promises. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, to know what what Solomon is talking about here, we have to understand this this issue of vows. We don't want to import something into the text that isn't there, so we need to be clear. We're not not talking about, Solomon's not talking about uh, just sort of flippant, making, making a promise to God that you'll spend more time with your family. Or he's not talking about about promising God that you'll try to be a better person if God helps you to pass your final exams. A vow in in an Old Testament context or in the worship temple context was a promise that you made to give something that you had to God for his use. For example, you might commit to offer some animal, some sacrifice that was above and beyond what was required in the law. The point is this. These kinds of offerings and these kinds of vows were voluntary, yet they were all binding. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 23. We find these instructions beginning in verse 21. He says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. In Psalm 66, David said in verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Some 50 years or so after Solomon's day in Malachi chapter 1 verse 14, speaking of this kind of vow and sadly the breaking of it, Malachi 1.14 says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And guess how the people of Malachi's day felt about worship? Vanity of vanities. They were never content. They were never satisfied with it. In fact, in the verse right before that, in Malachi 1, verse 13, we read this. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? 
Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? So how did God reward them for, uh, for offering such pitiful sacrifices? How did He reward them for their vow-breaking? With tired and frustrated attitudes toward worship. Rather than joyful and content attitudes. But this situation in Ecclesiastes 5 is a little worse than that. Here you're tempted not to bring a pathetic substitute for what you have vowed. You're tempted to back out altogether. Solomon says, watch out. Watch out. Be careful about making a vow, particularly in light of the frustration of the curse and when things are not going the way that you want them to go. The danger is that you would make some commitment and then not fulfill it, which ends up being a bribe to God. God, if you will just fill in the blank. God, if you will just give me a spouse. God, if you will just give me a promotion. God, if you will just give me a child. God, if you will just save my children. God, if you will just give me a, a favorable, favorable report from the doctor. Then I will blank. Again, God isn't saying not to make commitments. What God is saying is, don't do that to manipulate Him. And if you do make a vow and the time comes around to fulfill it, don't grumble about it or make excuses. Because doing that is like saying, this is my universe. And God needs to get over it if I don't respect him the way that he wants. Solomon says, don't do it. Don't make a promise and then later act as if what you did was some sort of inadvertent error. Don't make a commitment and then slither out of it because it turns out to be inconvenient or because the cost of keeping your word would be too great. Because when God judges or disciplines such foolishness, the results can be catastrophic. What does it say? God might destroy the work of your hands. And just to be clear, God's anger and ability to destroy our works doesn't describe the bully who tries to use his anger to control us or the violent-tempered person with whom we walk on eggshells. God gets angry at what we hope He would get angry with. God doesn't intend to approve or favor those who use His name to do evil to others. God doesn't intend to approve those who make promises with no intention of fulfilling them. Those who exalt their own words and their own plans. Those who use religion to selfishly advance themselves. Those who distort the character and the work of God. He opposes people like that. God does what we long for Him to do. God judges the religious hypocrite. And again, this isn't just about those other people. 
This is a warning for us. We cannot dupe God by our religiosity or phony commitments. He is not naive regarding what people do in his name. Verse 7 says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Which brings us to the final warning. He says, Beware, beware of approaching God with sinful attitudes. Beware of approaching God with sinful attitudes. I mean, this, this really is at the root of what's going on, right? Arrogance, not treating God as holy, complaining about Him, kicking against His providence, thinking that God needs us, and acting as if we need Him, but only so far as He will meet our needs and fulfill our desires. Turning God into a subservient slave who exists to please me. We've got some picture in our minds of, uh, of what we want our, our relationships to look like, of, of what we want our salaries or our bank accounts to look like, of how we want life to go, freedom from consequences, ease and comfort, all of the curse and the effects of the fall gone. And God is the one to give it to us. And the more that we witness and experience the realities of the fall, the more we are tempted to believe the lies and turn away from the truth about who we are and who God is. This is the real problem in our worship. Our view of God has grown too small and our view of ourselves has grown too large. Stephen Charnock said this, He says, when we believe that we ought to be satisfied rather than God glorified, we set God below ourselves. Imagine that he should submit his own honor to our advantage and make ourselves more glorious than God. As though we were not made for him, but he made for us. But Solomon reminds us, Our God is in heaven, and we are on earth. God is above and beyond this world. We live life under the sun. But he's beyond the sun. His greatness, his knowledge, his power are beyond this world and beyond comprehension. And there is an infinite distinction between God and us. And yet... It's not as if God is far off somewhere, distant and disinterested in what's going on right here, right now. No, he sees our struggles. He sees reality. He sees all of life from beginning to end. He sees and knows not only your circumstances, he knows what is in your heart. Which is why rash promises and self-centered prayers and arguments before him are so foolish. So be careful. Guard your steps. Beware of manipulating God with vain prayers. Beware of bribing Him with empty promises. And beware of approaching Him with sinful attitudes. Do you want to live wisely in Christ? 
and avoid foolish religion. Don't hold a low view of God in which prayer becomes a way of milking God for all you can get. Don't put up some kind of big spiritual front with others and in front of God and then always wiggle out of real commitment in your so-called Christianity. True, joyful religion only comes one way. And Solomon puts an explanation point on it in verse 7. Two words. Fear God. Fear God. And he's not talking about terror Terror is a reaction to guilt in the face of God's holiness. It's the desire to run away from God in despair. Solomon is talking about being filled with a breathtaking awe of the character of God. Of living in light of that powerful paradox of God. That God detests sin in us more than we are ever prepared to admit. And yet he loves us in Christ more than we can ever imagine. And this draws us in. That is wise religion. That is wise Christian living. Surrendering submissively to God's sovereignty. Looking at life and saying, God, you are in charge. I trust you. Fearing God is keeping His commandments. It is Holy Spirit-empowered obedience. Fearing God is hating evil. Fearing God is being concerned about what offends Him and concerned about what pleases Him. And here in Ecclesiastes 5, it is not acting like you can can manipulate God with your prayers and not acting as if you can toy with God or deceive God by making promises and then not keeping them. So your options, increase your frustration, increase your frustrations, or decrease them. If you're not a believer and you're not a follower of Christ, then you can do all the right, the right stuff, and you're still going to be frustrated and face God's eternal wrath. But this wisdom is primarily aimed at believers, those who love God and live by faith in Him. Foolish religion with its low view of God that thinks it can boss God around, great frustration. Wise, true Christianity with its high view of God and its Christ-strengthened commitments, that, Solomon says, is contentment enjoy. Wise or foolish, which will it be? Let's stand for prayer. Father, you are holy and glorious, high and lifted up, too great to approach, but too great not to approach. You are the one before whom we tremble and you are the one, the only one in whom we find safety and salvation. We confess to you, Lord, that too often we approach you prepared to to lecture you, to question you, to challenge you, 
rather than coming with a receptive attitude and a readiness to listen. We confess that we are too full of our own opinions, too full of complaining, so faithless compared to your faithfulness, and guilty of making promises and not following through. Lord, would you please forgive us for our foolishness and our wickedness? And would you give us a heart that wants to listen, that wants to obey, that desires to be quiet, that desires to worship, a heart that is focused on honoring you and thanking you in the midst of both adversity and prosperity? a heart that is overflowing with praise, that trusts you, a heart that despises sin but adores Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.